Hello, and thank you for listening to the MicroBinFi podcast. Here, we will be discussing topics in microbial bioinformatics. We hope that we can give you some insights, tips, and tricks along the way. There is so much information we all know from working in the field, but nobody writes it down. There is no manual, and it's assumed you'll pick it up. We hope to fill in a few of these gaps. My co-hosts are Dr. Nabil Ali Khan and Dr. Andrew Page. I am Dr. Lee Katz. Both Andrew and Nabil work in the Quadrum Institute in Norwich, UK, where they work on microbes in food and the impact on human health. I work at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and am an adjunct member at the University of Georgia in the US. Welcome to the Microbial Bioinformatics Podcast. Leo and Nabil, myself, are your hosts for today. And we're talking with Dr. Emma Hodcroft about all things SARS-CoV-2 and Next Strain. Emma is a postdoctoral researcher at the ISPM, University of Bern in Switzerland, and a member of the SIB, that's the Swiss Institute of Bioinformatics in Switzerland. Emma has had many lives, including college in Texas, graduate school in Scotland, and now a research position in Switzerland. Her topics have been very diverse, from HIV to tuberculosis, and now SARS-CoV-2. She currently works on next strain and SARS-CoV-2, and there is plenty to unpack today. We're also joined by Dr. Leo Martins, who's head of phylogenomics at QIB. So he runs analysis for other research at the Institute, especially when they involve a phylogenetic inference. At the same time, he's been developing and implementing new software where there are gaps in the current landscape and help the community. We are now talking about next strain and as it applies to SARS-CoV-2. And so just to open up with an easy question, Emma, what were some of the changes made to next strain to allow it to work on SARS-CoV-2? as opposed to flu and other viruses? This is a great question because this is something that we did face kind of from the early days of the pandemic. Now, luckily, because we'd done a lot of the base work to make next strain a more modular and more flexible bioinformatic pipeline before the pandemic, actually adapting it to work on this novel virus, that was really straightforward. Next strain is now flexible enough that if you have a virus you want to run it on, uh, the pipeline essentially will usually work just fine. It's more your own details about you know, picking a reference sequence and setting the mutation rate or inferring the mutation rate. The more bioinformatic questions, of course, always have to be sorted out. But just running next strain on this novel virus was pretty straightforward. And actually some of the first questions that we faced were not technical, but were more about how to present this. Because one thing we encountered very early with Nextrain was getting a lot more attention than we had ever had before. Nextrain was certainly known in the scientific community before the pandemic, but it was pretty niche. You know, you had to be into phylogenetics to be familiar with Nextrain. And with the interest in SARS-CoV-2 or NCOV as it was then, there was a, we, had a, we had a lot of people, not just scientists, but also the general public coming to the website and interested in understanding what is this virus and why are scientists making these strange tree graph things about it. And so we actually made some early decisions about things like normally we would display our branch lengths in the very traditional format of showing the number of changes per base per year which is really useful, especially for more diverse sequences. And this is kind of the standard in phylogenetics, but it's almost impossible to interpret if you aren't from a phylogenetics background. They're really, really tiny numbers. They were especially very tiny for SARS-CoV-2 because it didn't have 
any changes yet and it doesn't have like a super fast mutation rate. So we made the decision to actually just show the number of mutations, which works really well for SARS-CoV-2. And we still show this today because it has few enough changes that you really can, you know, it's still less than 100 for most sequences out of a 30,000 base genome. And so you can just put this in really simple terms for people to understand that this sequence and this sequence are separated by X number of changes. It makes it much easier for people to understand and interpret than having a, a more complicated way of showing it. Another thing that we changed early on was not necessarily, again, in the code, but in being really careful about what we were putting up. So making sure that we were previewing every build before we put it online, making sure that the analysis looked accurate and that there wasn't anything misleading. And this was because very early on, people started trying to interpret these phylogenetic trees, which is wonderful as a phylogeneticist, but phylogenetics can be very misleading. You know, you can look at these colorful trees, especially then we had them, you know, it was pretty zoomed in picture. We didn't have that many sequences. And you could make up all kinds of fun stories about, well, this person from this country must have gone to this country, and that's how this country got the virus. And of course, if you, if you do phylogenetics, you know that we can rarely make these kinds of really concrete statements. But with a phylogenetic tree, especially if something in there is, is not in the right place, people can come up with a lot of stories that can have real world impact. And so we did change how careful we were being about what we were putting online and how much interpretation we were going along with. And I think one of the coolest things that we did early on was we actually made situation reports. So these are these great things called next strain narratives where you can actually put a next strain tree on one side and then you can have some text on the other side. And as you scroll through the text, the next strain tree will change. And we use this as a way of showing people this is how you can actually read a phylogeny. And these proved to be insanely popular. I think they were translated, they're being translated into over 20 languages early in the pandemic when they were at their peak. And this made all of next strain phylogenetics and the, the genetics of the pandemic much more accessible for the many people that were interested in it at the time. Uh, later on in the pandemic, we've also, of course, had to make many more changes. I don't know if we want to get more into that, but about, of course, the more technical challenges that we faced as the pandemic has progressed. And we've had to deal with completely new challenges for things like, like data size. Yes, please. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> let's jump into that. Data size, automation. I mean, Leo, how many are we up to now? How many people are trying to shove into one of these programs at a time? Two million, three million? I think at the GIS side, we have 10 million. Right. So how, like, I th I'm sure people want to know, how do you even <laughs> approach numbers like this? Because when I make a tree of a bacteria, I can put like 500 and then it doesn't, that's it. <laughs> like, it just takes forever. <laughs> 2000 tips on a, on a figure and fig in, in ITOL or something, it looks like a spiky sea urchin thing. So what are you doing to, to all, just chug through this data, automate it, display it and so on? Yeah. So these were challenges that came on pretty quickly as the pandemic progressed. In the early days, of course, the data was really manageable. We just had a few sequences and actually they were coming in, you know, not many countries even were picking up the virus yet. And they were coming in some, I mean, I don't want to say infrequently, but we might get a few every day. And it was also so exciting that we would, we would literally be checking the website, you know, refreshing the page to see if there was a new sequence. And when we got one, we would run it immediately because we couldn't wait to see how it fit into the tree. And in those early days, it was incredibly manual, as in so manual that there wasn't even a way to download FASTA files very effectively. And so we were copying and pasting them 
into text editors to put them into the FASTA. And then of course we would have to run the pipeline. This was all happening somewhat manually. I mean, we were each running it on our laptop and I ran SARS-CoV-2 analyses on buses, you know, in the middle of the night, whenever a sequence came, that was what we did. And this was super exciting. But of course it became completely unsustainable as the number of sequences went up. One of the first things that we had to counter with was we can't fit them all in the tree. So next strain really works. I mean, you can push the visualization side. It's completely in your browser. You can push it up to maybe 8,000, maybe 10,000 tips, but it, the performance does start to degrade massively. You get a lot more lag as you try and click around, change colors, this kind of thing. And so we decided to restrict the trees to about 5,000 sequences, which, which is what we still do today. So we take the global set of sequences and we then downsample that in different ways. So we have a global run and then we have a run for each of the continents, North America, South America, et cetera. And this not only keeps the analysis a little bit faster. So we run every day. This means it completes a little faster, but it also means the visualization just makes a lot more sense. Because the other thing is if you put 10 million sequences into a tree, even if your browser could visualize that, you'd probably have a very hard time making anything of it because it would be too much to even look at. Another challenge that we had to face though is, is actually automating the runs. So we had people doing this, starting the runs on their laptops for a long time. Then we moved to running these on compute clusters as, as the data set got bigger, but they were still being cleaned and started manually. So every day we would get new data, but we still had to make sure that data was good. So for example, are the dates in the right format? Have people put the countries in in the right way? Have they put a funny symbol into the name of the sequence? All kind of scientifically that seems boring, but if anyone who's worked on sequences know this is critical before you can start a data set. And we need to do things like standardize locations because of course you can call a country or even a town many names. In Switzerland, of course, we often have two or three names for different cities in the country. But if you want to put it on a map with a computer, it has to be the same name all the time so that you know where that is. And so we had people working every day, Moira Zuber and Eli Harkins were the two research systems that really helped with this. And unfortunately, this was something that we did literally seven days a week. Uh, we, nobody got any weekends for the first few months of the pandemic. This was, again, it was really exciting at the time. And I think we were all really happy to pitch in, but again, it wasn't sustainable. And now we've moved to a system where this happens completely automatically. The data cleaning happens automatically, and then the runs start automatically, and it all gets pushed up online automatically. But it's taken us a long time to get there. And of course, it does lead to uh, questions about we need to have automated things like the automated quality control because we don't, we no longer have someone manually checking the tree every day to make sure that something crazy didn't go in there, which unfortunately can still capture conspiracy theory mindsets. And then the last thing that's been a challenge, not just for NextStream, but for many people is even just the size of the data and the, and the size of the files. The files are now pretty huge, even though they're compressed and it can take a while to download them and take a while to just read them in to start your analysis. So we've had to work on ways to make even just reading in and writing out files more efficient, which of course pre-pandemic was the least of our worries when you're working with 2000 sequences, this is really nothing. But when you're working with 10 million, even things like how many times you're going to write out data or how many times you're going to read it in can make a huge difference to your runtime. And for us, we've of course been really lucky. We've had the expertise and the compute power to deal with this, but I know there are other 
other programs around the world, other labs around the world, where this is a this is a real bottleneck. Even just getting the files over a bad internet connection can be a real challenge these days. Oh, definitely. And but you did mention downsampling strategies, and I know Leo, that's that's a thing you've also been having a look at. So I'm wondering if we can just talk about how Next Train actually does it. Maybe we can compare some notes. What's the best approach for downsampling? for COVID and then maybe generalize it to downsampling for any biological thing we want to look at. For most of SARS-CoV-2, for the main next strain builds, we've actually been a little bit lucky because we've been able to do a pretty straightforward downsampling. So in the earliest iterations, we were just trying to sample equally across geography and across time. So we've had a pretty simple filter method, which already existed, that tries to evenly sample, like, for example, you know, the same number of sequences from each geographical place over the year that you have samples to try and equalize between countries that sequence a lot and countries that sequence a little. And then for the regional builds, we modified this a little bit so that, for example, if we're trying to focus on North America, we'll preferentially sample more sequences from North America and then include a little bit of background for the, from the rest of the world. But over time, we've had to even change this to be more complicated. So for one thing, we wanted to make sure that even in, for example, a North American build, the sequences that you're probably most interested in are those that might have connections to your North American sequences, not necessarily just a random sample of the world, but samples that might help you learn something about how your North American sequences are connected more globally. And so I helped to introduce our proximity function, which essentially looks at the sequences that you consider your kind of focal set, in this example, North American sequences, and it tries to find similar matches in the rest of the database and preferentially include those so that you have what we would call background sequences that are kind of most relevant to your question. And this has come in particularly really useful for people that are looking at more detailed questions, which of course, if you're not next strain, is going to be most of the world. You're not necessarily interested in a global picture of SARS-CoV-2 anymore, it's global, but you're more interested in what's happening in my town or in my country. Can we see connections between different places? And this proximity function has actually been really useful there. Because if you have, for example, samples of a suspected outbreak, you can include those as your focal set. And then the proximity function will comb through the rest of the database and find some appropriate sequences that are nearby, which are probably the ones you're most interested in. You know, how is this outbreak related to some other town or another country or sequences that are in the outbreak that you missed? You didn't sample them, but they're in the database. And so I do think that's been a that's been a real advance. And I'm hoping that this will be also potentially useful outside of the pandemic for people to search for sequences that are related to the sequences they have. Of course, with the somewhat caveat that for many pathogens, we just don't even have enough sequences that this is a problem. You can literally throw them all in because there's maybe a thousand or two thousand, but we're hopefully heading towards a world where that won't be the case anymore, where we're gonna have a lot more sequences and then thinking about how do we downsample how do we make sure we've included the most relevant sequences? These are questions that people are going to need to start answering, even outside of the pandemic. Is, the, is that implementation available for people to pick up and use, or is it still under development somewhere? No, no, it's fully developed. So we've made a number of, and so I, I helped with the initial implementation. It has been kind of streamlined and improved since then beyond 
what I could do, but you can find it as the proximity function and then the priority function within next brain auger. So the proximity function actually calculates like how similar the other sequences are to your focal set and it will line up kind of a set of matches. And then the priority function will turn this into a number that next brain will use for sampling, if that makes sense. So it then will assign kind of, well, priorities for, you know, how much, how, how, if we only are taking X number of sequences, how do we figure out which of these are the most important to take? But of course, both of these functions can be used just as part of another pipeline or all of our code is open source. So you can, you can just take the code if that's all that you need. All right. And Leo, do you want to hop in and talk about some of the downsampling you've been doing and in, in your views? What's the best approach for it? in a post-COVID world? Because we, the challenge is, as Emma said, so you, you have the global, you have a global view, but you also have local, right? What's going on in your region with the sequences that you already have. I would say in general, I, I tend to use, if I already have a tree, and then I tend to use samples that preserve the phylogenetic diversity from that tree into my subsample. So I, there's, a, there's a hidden function in, uh, in IQ3, which is IQ3 minus K, that you can set the number of, this is because the one of the authors of IQ3 wrote a, a software called PDA, which is phylogenetic diversity analysis. And so they still have the, the, the functions uh, inside IQ3. Anyway, so you can have a tree that, that tries to preserve the same phylogenetic diversity as your original tree, but with uh, fewer leaves. Uh, there's another software called Trimmer that I also use sometimes. This is to, to try to have a global representation that still makes sense. And for localized, I use, so as Emma was, was talking about the, the proximity function. So we develop here the Quadrum, a software called Uvaya, which tries to do the same thing. And basically it scans through the database and finds the, the sequences that are closest to your sequence. And then it returns them with some statistics. All right. So between all of that, for all the people who tend to ask me questions about downsampling, there you go. There's tons of implementations and approaches for you to use between both what Leo and Emma have said. I do have a question that comes up for me. How do you detect and deal? Because the sampling isn't random. Well, you assume it is, but it isn't. So how do you deal with cases where someone has just shoved in a, an outbreak analysis where they've just gone after genome after genome of effectively probably the same patient or same family or whatever. How do you detect that? And probably you want to exclude that from the type of analysis we've been talking about. So what would both of you do? Yeah, so that's a great question. And unfortunately, it's one that's pretty hard to deal with. So there is a field, if you upload data to GISAID, for example, where you can put in the type of sampling that you were doing. So whether it was surveillance, which is generally what we want. So these were you know, people that came in and got tested and we've selected a random or a geographically represented, but, but essentially we didn't pick you know, just a few people specifically. We've tried to get a survey of our infected population. That's ideally what we want in phylogenetics for, for these kinds of overviews. And then you can also put in, for example, this was an outbreak investigation. Ideally, we would always be excluding the outbreaks and just using the surveillance. Unfortunately, we don't get this data automatically for next strain at the moment. But even if we did, a lot of people just don't include it. I mean, there's a lot of fields to fill in when you upload data. And a lot of people are now uploading a lot of data. And the people that upload the data 
are often or can be quite removed from the people that collected the data. So there can be a real break between who actually knows what these samples are and are they just numbers and sequences that you know someone else got off of a sequencer and needs to put into GISAID. So these are problems that can be really hard to rectify. On the next strain level, this is something that we, we, we checked for kind of manually earlier in the pandemic. If we saw a lot of sequences coming in, that seemed a little suspicious that were from the same place with very similar date. We would reach out and check, you know, how were the sequences gathered? Was this, you know, some outbreak investigation? Is this something we want to include? But at this point, it's just not something that we have the time or the person power to follow up with this anymore. On the other hand, it's also not as big of an issue. We get so many sequences now from all over the world that even if a few of these are outbreak investigations, it's just not going to have a big impact, especially on how downsampled our trees are since we only look at these larger levels. Now where this will play a bigger role is of course, people who want to use this data for doing things like local outbreaks or local investigations or more detailed questions. Then unfortunately you might have to go back and check manually you know, and maybe contact people to find out where did these sequences come from. So it's an, it's an ongoing challenge of how do, you, how do you filter for things that sometimes are related to data that you may or may not be able to, to reach out and ask someone about. There you go. Never trust anybody. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> Always be skeptical. I do think that's a good rule. I mean, something that we've run into a lot is, is date mix-ups. And it seems like such a small thing that like surely, surely we as a scientific community can figure out one answer to this. But of course, in reality, it's really hard. You know, people make mistakes. Excel messes up your, your date field. People write dates, of course, you know, in some countries they write month and day, in other countries they write day and month. And people hard code years. I mean, I, I'm still fixing dates that come in as Omicron sequences from January, 2021. It's hard to keep on top of all of that. And I have a lot of sympathy for the people on their end putting this in, but these are simple things that, yeah, you, you can't always trust the data that comes. You have to have ways to check it. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. That's, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> it was terrible. The amount of times I had to correct dates. So one of the other things that came out of SARS-CoV-2 was the development of the covariance website. We'll have a link to that in the show notes so people can have a look at it. So Emma, what is the covariance website? How did you develop it? Why did you develop it? Covariance is something that I'm really proud of having come up with during the pandemic. And it's one of the things that I've enjoyed working on the most during the pandemic. And essentially what covariance is, is it's a website where you can get information about the different circulating SARS-CoV-2 variants. And perhaps the most popular is that you can look at graphs that show the proportion of sequences from different countries, what variant is is currently circulating and has circulated in the past in those countries. And then there's another couple of pages that are popular. For example, you can also compare the mutations across the different variants, which is something people are often interested in as well. And the idea for covariance came about at the end of 2020 when I'd been working on the EU1 variant, which was one that I detected that circulated a lot in Europe in the summer of 2020. And as part of that work, I was making these graphs showing how EU1 had spread to different countries and what other variants were in those countries. And I realized like, you know, I bet other people would be interested in these graphs. And of course I'm thinking scientists, but I thought I bet that other people would find this really useful. And when alpha hit at the end of 2020, it really put some urgency in this for me. Like, okay, now people are really interested in what variants are circulating in different countries. So I bundled up the code that I had made to do that analysis. And I made a GitHub repository where you could look at a few different countries in Europe and see the variants circulating there as in 
especially with the rise of alpha, this kind of instantly proved to be something people were really interested in. And I was incredibly lucky. Yvonne, who's also developed the Nextalign and, and Nextclade, he asked Richard if he could help to develop a full website for covariance, which he's the one that makes it look so beautiful. And so we launched that full website, I think just before the, the end of the year in 2020. And it was the first website that was dedicated to tracking SARS-CoV-2 variants. And it's proved to be incredibly popular. We've been featured in many different magazine articles, many publications. Our data also goes to support our world in data charts that you can see there. And I think what's really made covariance a little bit unique is, is that it's really accessible. So there's a lot of websites now that you can use to track variants. And I think it's fantastic that there's different resources people can use, especially because they, we all target slightly different things. But a lot of the other websites like outbreak.info or Pop Spectrum are a little bit more technical, which for scientists is fantastic. You can dig into the details of the variants and look at all the different mutations and really customize what you're looking at. But for a lot of people, this is this is more than they need. And covariance offers a, a simple, but in, in a lot of ways, a really accessible at a glance overview of what variants are circulating where. And I think that there has been a, a need for this and an interest in seeing this. And so for me, it's been hugely gratifying to be able to develop something that people have found so useful in the pandemic. I use it all the time as uh, crib sheets when my mom asks me, what's this variant doing and what's happening in this country? I go and <laughs> look it up. Is this mutation like bad or something like that? I go, because you've got, you've actually not only got the demographics of what's going on, but you've also got like, what are the mutations are responsible for possibly? I often use it just for that to just tell my <laughs> folks what, what is going on at any given point in time. So yeah, it's, it's a really a useful tool. And there's a very nice tree as well, right? Describing the, the connection between all the variants. Yes, and that actually comes from Nextrain. So I can't I can't take credit for the tree. That that's a that's a Nextrain effort. <laughs> but again, I think it's 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 another great way where you know we make these really complicated phylogenetic trees and they're yeah. incredibly useful to many people, especially scientists, but also having a really simple graphic that just shows you how the variants are related. This is super useful for a lot of people. So so for me, I mean, I'm super happy to hear that covariance is, is useful. And, and it's exactly kind of what I'm hoping that it's for. It's that a lot of people want answers and they need those in, in an accessible way that is still really accurate and useful, but is something that's not too scary and that is approachable. So I'm, I'm really happy to have kind of married phylogenetics and, and science communication through covariance. Just one last question. Is there anything you can say about the implementation uh, tips for people who might want to make something similar for their bug of choice? I'd say that for me, certainly the hardest part of covariance for me to imagine is the wonderful web interface because I had nothing to do with that. And that's all of Yvonne's imagination. So one tip I would have is find a wonderful person who can develop a beautiful website. That's not an easy one, but it, it is really important. But I would say also just have a think about what, what your target audience is. So what are you trying to get across and how can your website contribute something that's not out there already? And sometimes that may not mean that you try and put every single bit of information into your tool or into your app. It can sometimes mean that you're going to simplify that in a useful way, that you're going to actually you know, de-scienceize or de-complexify what people are looking at. Because for a lot of science, it's not that the information isn't out there, or I mean, of course, for some science that is true, but for a lot of science, the information is out there in things like publications and data sets. But if you're trying to make a web app, it's often to make things more accessible. And so that sometimes does mean that you're not going to have it in the same format as you might for a raw data set or a publication. 
but how can you creatively expand on that and simplify that and come up with new ways of displaying it so that more people can make use of it? And that's, I think that's actually a really good final closing point to end on, something positive for everyone out there. So that's all of the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Emma Hodcroft and Leo Martins, for joining me today. We've been talking about next strain, coronavirus, and some of the implications of that. And we'll see you next time on the MicroBinfi podcast. Thank you so much for listening to us at home. If you like this podcast, Please subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or the platform of your choice. Follow us on Twitter at MicroBinfi. And if you don't like this podcast, please don't do anything. This podcast was recorded by the Microbial Bioinformatics Group. The opinions expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views of CDC or the Quadrum Institute.